This year, we've partnered with Common Bond, a company that helps medical students save money on their student loans by customizing a loan for current medical students with rates that beat the federal Grad Plus loan. Forget everything you knew about private loans. Common Bond is the new way to pay for medical school. ITB listeners also get a $300 bonus when they sign up. Get started today at commonbond.co slash ITB. That's commonbond.co slash ITB. Thank you, India. Thank you, terror. Thank you, this illusion man. Thank you, friends. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, welcome to part two of our pulmonary review. Without any delay, let's get right into the main aspect of today's show. So, okay, what factor could have caused this shift in the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve? So we have a 43-year-old woman who presents the emergency department with cherry red skin and dizziness. She says that she had a sudden headache. On exam, she has a pulse ox of 100%, but her O2 saturation is decreased. Again, which, of the, which factors could have caused this shift in the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve? Is it A, increase in temperature? B, carbon monoxide poisoning? C, decrease 2,3-BPG? Or D, decrease in pH? So, I know you know the answer to this by sheer, just this, the the presentation. So, but go ahead and walk me through it. So, you're, there's a couple things to this question. One, um, I I do think it's a little funny that um, we keep talking about cherry red skin for this, and that is actually an autopsy finding. Yeah, exactly. She wouldn't walk in. And if she's cherry red, you missed it quite a while ago. Probably a more typical presentation of this would be you get a uh, entire family checks into the emergency department, all saying that uh, they've got headache, dizziness, and myalgias after spending a night in a uh, cold, poorly heated house. But you're you're looking for some reason that would shift an oxygen dissociation curve while at the same time keeping a pulse ox at a hundred percent. So pulse ox is a is a color metric test that it's imperfect, especially um there are there are newer pulse oximetry devices, but the standard ones are fooled by any sort of saturated hemoglobin so it really it's it's almost like a instead of an o2 sat it's more of a hemoglobin sat the machine will read 100 percent regardless of the molecule that's attached and so carbon monoxide being something that is so has such a high affinity for hemoglobin will actually show up as 100 percent so we'll go through all the other ones but the answer being carbon monoxide poisoning the reason that it shows up 
as a hundred percent on pulse ox is because the machine is tricked by it. Right. And do you have that carboxy or carbon monoxide binding the hemoglobin and causing a, a similar, um, I guess, frequency of, of color metric to be emitted. So it doesn't, doesn't register as any different yeah. to the machines. At least the, as you said, the, the new, the older ones or maybe new ones are a little better. Maybe <laughs> there, there are, um, so there's two ways you can test for, uh, carbon monoxide. You can use a, uh, as a device called a co-oximetry that's a uh, similar type of just little finger probe that is uh, color metric, but it's better and it can tell the difference between the different forms of hemoglobin. Um, and that's pretty accurate. Uh, so you can do that without even drawing blood. And then you could just, you could send off a blood gas is the other way to do it. So just knowing that there there are other ways that we check to make sure it is actually carbon monoxide. So for this, there are a couple other things here. There is the so it causes a shift in the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve. I really didn't think it did that so much as decreased the total curve. But it I guess that is a shift. Uh, but I think of the whole the total binding capacity for, you know, O2 to kind of drop because it's being competed or competed against this carbon monoxide uh taking up space on the on the hemoglobin so there's less oxygen being delivered to the tissues like you said you know you can kind of diagnose or answer this question just on the vignette alone mindful of the the autopsy finding a cherry red skin and we can still go with the dizziness and headache uh and knowing that she's got this o2 sat that says a hundred percent, but the overall saturations actually decreased. So just knowing those things, uh, you can probably lend yourself to the actual diagnosis of carbon monoxide poisoning. However, there are some important, like there are changes to the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve that occurs with changes in temperature, pH, and the two, three BPG as well. I have kind of a very fast and loose understanding or way of learning this. So I will try to teach everyone really quickly because it saved me uh, from like really having to dig this in and figure it out for each and every one of them. But for most things, if you change uh, pH there to the concentration of hydrogen ions which is the ergo of what pH stands for, right? Uh, then you can essentially use e increase and decrease to determine which way the curve is going to shift. So anything that increases, uh, if you take the increase, that's going to cause a right shift in most of those things. And if it decreases, it's going to cause a left shift in most of those things. If you look in first aid, again, change pH, and then all the all of the uh, different variables will cause that same pattern, and it makes it just a lot easier to memorize. So I recommend doing that. Uh, obviously, we're on an audio podcast, and you can't visualize this, so it may be something to think about next time you're you're looking at that chart. Um, but that was basically how I remembered it for step one, and it served me. So. Hopefully, hopefully it helps you too. 
Yeah, um, it's definitely something, uh, the the chart especially, and you can find that in basically any review book, uh, is super helpful. It's a high yield topic. There's going to be probably a couple questions on the oxygen uh, hemoglobin dissociation curve. I, I remembered it the same way. So if you take pH as a, you know, a decrease in pH as an increase in hydrogen ions, then you can say an increase in any of the factors shifts the curve to the right, and then every decrease shifts the curve to the left. A couple other things. So um, I, I think every, everyone says the 2,3 BPG. I, I, don't, I don't think people have a good understanding of what that actually is. Um, yeah, I remember, you, really to, you know, <laughs> but it, it's, it, it's kind of interesting to, to learn about it. It's a, a glycolysis, um, uh, byproduct. And exactly. It, That's all I remember yeah. is there was this <laughs> little, there was probably like two slides when you learned about glycolysis, where it was like, there's this shunt for this two, three BPG yeah. and it goes to hemoglobin and makes it bind or shifts the curve okay <laughs> and then and then you forget about it and then it, but it is it is kind of neat to know that it's a uh, one of the ways that your body adapts to varying concentrations of oxygen in your environment so as you say you go um, to high altitudes it's one of your adaptations to a high altitude is to increase your amount of bpg um, which actually decreases uh, affinity for oxygen to hemoglobin. So it, it's more likely to dump oxygen into the tissues, which is really what you need at those high altitudes. So just just a little bit more about carbon monoxide, I think is a really fascinating subject. Diagnosing it really can be quite difficult uh, in reality because it uh, frequently shows up in winter months. It's right around flu season and all the symptoms basically sound like the flu. So uh, it, it's always something to have in the back of your mind if you see a question that talks about either an entire family that's sick or um, people who have symptoms that sound like a viral syndrome but don't have a fever. Um, and they may give you some explanation as to the patient is using a kerosene heater or something because carbon monoxide being a byproduct of incomplete carbon combustion. There's usually a, some sort of heater and poorly ventilated room involved. The treatment is 100% oxygen, and that is frequently tested um, just because it's such a such an easy thing, and it, it makes so much sense physiologically. If you're, you're, you're having a molecule that's competing for your hemoglobin, you just kind of got to force it out with increased partial pressure of oxygen. So you just yeah, throw a non-rebreather at 100% on the patient, and that decreases the, the half-life of the, the uh, carbon monoxide hemoglobin association. The other answer you may see pop up for treatment of this is hyperbarics. So again, it's just 100% uh, oxygen and at an increased partial pressure more atmospheres of pure oxygen um, will reduce the uh, the time that the, the carbon monoxide is attached to the hemoglobin and theoretically can reduce the long-term consequences, get a lot of neurologic problems from prolonged exposure to carbon monoxide. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting um, 
conspiracy on Reddit about this uh, uh, this this illustrious post where someone was had like some paranoia symptoms and that worked out to be carbon monoxide or something. Google it if you have the time. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a it's a very it's a very tough thing to diagnose. I've seen it a couple times and it's it's really subtle. Yeah, and they they won't make that for them. They won't make it that difficult for this test at least. And you're right. the The re- reality is not not the test. Uh, unless they give you cherry red skin, yeah. then you're like, oh, yeah, that's not quite. Right. <laughs> but do you know, yeah. I mean, knowing that uh, uh, 100% oxygen uh, or hyperbarics would be the the treatment of choice. Exactly, and they may do that kind of like a competitive inhibitor question, and uh, they they could easily be a uh, pharmaco. What is it? Kinetics question. The the other thing I think about is like I guess if you really were in a a, a real desperate situation you could give them blood uh, and just offset the uh, carbon monoxide but you'd have to be really desperate at that point. Yeah, um, uh-huh. and then it's they occasionally will ask stuff about what the PaO two and the hemoglobin. What would it actually look like if you had a carbon monoxide poisoning and the answer is they look normal, normal because their hemoglobin is the same and their actual uh, partial pressure of dissolved oxygen is the same in the plasma. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, uh, the hemoglobin is not the problem. It's, it's that association. All right. Let's do this next one here. So which of the following drugs most likely resulted in this side effect? We have a 28-year-old female who comes to your clinic to receive a PPD test so that she can start working in a hospital setting. Four days later, she returns with a positive PPD test and you confirm that she has tuberculosis with a chest x-ray. After prescribing her a few first-line treatment drugs for tuberculosis, she is sent home. A few weeks later, the patient comes back complaining that she has been urinating a red-slash-orange color. Again, which of the following drugs most likely resulted in this side effect? Is it A, ethambutol, B, pyrazinamide, C, isoniazid, or D, rifampin? I feel bad for this patient who came back four days later with a positive PPD. Right. They should have. <laughs> and so, someone probably should have warned her about the color change in her urine <laughs> yeah exactly this just didn't go right um so how would you work through this um so i think it's pretty straightforward you think okay what drug yeah and in the whole the this is one of those questions where the the whole vignette is not as important you don't yeah. really know need to know why she was getting treated it's just a looking for a side effect i do find it interesting she it does sound like this is probably latent tb from what i can see on the question stem but i won't nitpick on that uh you've got your ripe therapy for uh what we're presuming is active tuberculosis um that's your four drugs for two months two drugs for four months kind of therapy which is still um you know it's uh still pretty much first line therapy for a uh, active case of tuberculosis and they love these um, medication side effect questions 
because these are all very interesting drugs that you don't see in a lot of other places. So it's it's kind of the one time that uh, the board writers get to actually grill you on this stuff. Um, each of the, the four uh, drugs has a pretty characteristic side effect that you need to know. And so if you only know one, that's usually enough. So Thambutol is the one that has a retinal damage. Um, so basically causes uh, like a, almost a acquired colorblindness. So you can just remember that Thambutol is the eye stuff, E for eye. E for eye, yep. Um, and then uh, pyrazidamide is probably the least interesting of the drugs in terms of their side effects. Is just uh, the one I remember is hepatotoxicity. Isoniazid, I find this incredibly fascinating, um, mostly because of the fellowship I'm going into, but isoniazid actually uh, can cause seizures and uh, peripheral nerve palsies um, because of its um, depletion of B6. So that gets into some fun biochemistry if you really want to go down the rabbit hole. It's a drug that is... um, uh, unfortunately, especially in like developing countries where uh, active TB is more common, is a, a, a drug that people will take an overdose, um, and so the the outcome of that is seizure, and the treatment for that is B6. So, kind of an interesting factoid about isoniazid. Um, but they will uh, it, usually for someone who's taking therapeutic doses of isoniazid. Uh, peripheral nerve palsy like a wrist drop or something like that uh, is certainly possible and the way to prevent that is to supplement b6 so that leaves rifampin um it, the red orange color r r for red uh pretty easy to remember and it's not uh it, it's not really any uh detrimental effect it does throw off uh like urine tests and stuff like that but um rifampin Red urine is a, a common association. And if you don't tell them, they will come back and they'll be like, I'm peeing blood now. Yeah, What's wrong? Right. And the same so, thing for, uh, so you get the same. So red red urine is something you also see with uh, peridium, uh, which is a, a bladder analgesic. And also with, uh, interestingly, the, uh, uh, the antidote for cyanide, uh, hydroxycobalamin can also cause red urine. So those are the, the three drugs I think of for a red-orange urine. I did not know that about hydroxycobalamin. Though, you point out a good point about these. Uh, point out a good point, of course. These are pretty straightforward in terms of what they, what they can cause. Uh, so they do like to test them. You you give away two with just like the first letter, right. uh, so the eyes with the thamutol, the red urine for rifampin. Uh, you mentioned that pyrazinamide is essentially they don't they don't talk about anything with it. Uh, maybe hepatotoxicity comes up, but I don't I don't even think I ever got a question on that. No, it's and just, then it's not as interesting, so it doesn't get tested as much. Yeah. yeah so the the and then isoniazid. They love the peripheral neuropathy uh, and B6 thing. So uh, keeping that in mind as well is a, that's pretty much the important stuff for those. Let's see. 
I guess isoniazid is another important one for drug-induced lupus. <laughs> so uh, that might be something that might be a way they could go down. Instead, they come back and now they have a, a positive ANA. Yeah, you might be you might be concerned that they they're now like starting to have lupus after their tuberculosis. But I just assume every drug can cause drug-induced lupus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> If you have a male with lupus, particularly, yeah, I'm right. thinking you have a drug. Okay, that's. I think that's pretty thorough. There, we can get into the fact of this question. Probably wouldn't need to use all four of these drugs. Probably just needs a couple months of. Rifampin would be fine, um, assuming this is a latent TB. All right, that concludes part two of our pulmonary review. We still have a couple episodes we need to upload for the Study Smarter series. I know a lot of you have already taken USMLE Step 1, but, you know, life, uh, as many of you have heard me say, I am still a full-time OBGYN, and the other team members in Inside the Boards, a lot of them are either full-time clinicians or medical students, so as you can imagine... Uh, the stars can align where the time and availability of all of us to contribute to the podcast, work on our app, our audio key bank, and etc., etc., uh, can be limited. So, you know, we're working hard for you. We appreciate you leaving a review of our shows on Apple Podcasts, telling your friends, and making sure to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to help us get the word out and continue to make this content to help you study on the go. Thank you, India. Thank you, terror. Thank you, this illusion man. Thank you, frailty. Thank you, consequence. Thank you.